Kitty Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Brian Cordes, the Director of National Programs for Neighborhood Cats. And I want to share with everyone that today is our 300th episode. Thank you so much for tuning in over the last almost three years we've been broadcasting. So thank you so much for making the lives of community cats in your area better and well cared for. And just really, really appreciate the support. Everybody subscribing either on iTunes or YouTube or Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Join in, share, and uh, thanks again for being with me for 300 episodes. So Brian, I'd like to uh, welcome you to the show. Thank you, Stacey, and congratulations on episode number 300. That's just a tremendous accomplishment, and thank you for everything you're contributing to the field. Well, and I'm so thrilled to be partnering with you this year, doing a webinar series. We did a great webinar with Trappers Tips and Tricks. We also have a Drop Trap webinar coming up mutually June 29th. Is it true the Drop Trap is one of your favorite tools of the trade? Uh, Yeah, we love the drop trap. It's um, something we use on almost every trapping. You know, we're going to go into all the tips and tricks about using drop traps and the different uh, ways that you can use them and the different methods. But yeah, we're out there every time we're trapping. At some point, we break out the drop trap, Uh, mostly so we don't have to wait around for the cats to go into the regular traps. It kind of moves things along. (laughs) So patience is not, you're not, you're not a patient guy. Well, you have to be a patient person, (laughs) no matter what, when you're talking about feral cats, that's for sure. Well, yeah, we're definitely patient, but, you know, if we can get something done in an hour instead of two or three, we'll take it. Great. Yeah. So check out communitycatspodcast.com. If you want to sign up for the webinar, it's a free webinar and it'll be on June 29th from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm sure also Neighborhood Cats will be sharing the information out about the webinar, too, so you can be on the lookout for that. So on today's show, before we take a deep dive, uh, about probably a couple of years ago now, you relocated out to Hawaii. So if you wouldn't mind just taking a few minutes to share with us uh, what's what's going on out in Hawaii for community cats. Well, I'm happy to say that here on the island of Maui, where we've set up a branch, uh, things have been going fantastic. We have just like the best partner you can imagine in the Maui Humane Society, and they have uh, been running a high-volume spay-neuter clinic with a lot of focus on community cats for close to two years now and uh, fixing thousands of community cats a year. And as a result, the intake is significantly lower uh, than it was a few years ago. And in just last, oh, I would say few years, I'm not sure whether it's three or four, the live release rate for cats has gone from about 25% to this past February, it was over 90%. So just a great team there that we're really happy to support. And it just shows you that things can get better, no matter how long they've been bad and how, how bad the overpopulation is. We're also seeing some progress on Oahu, where I'm consulting with the Hawaiian Humane Society on community TNR program there. They've hired a community cat coordinator, and they've gotten funding for spay-neuter, and we're starting to put a large-scale program together there. And that's the most populous island in Hawaii with, oh, gee, probably about two-thirds of the state's population. So things, things are looking good. There are definitely bumps in the road and difficulties to overcome, but more and more help getting out there for the community cats. 
That's great, because I know it's been a pretty contentious area between wildlife and community cat folks, but it sounds like you've kind of just focused on the job at hand and let the results sort of speak for themselves. You know, the wildlife community and conservation community here in Hawaii is just as opposed to TNR as they've ever been, which is unfortunate. But we kind of took a strategy when we first came here of trying to talk to everybody and trying to get on the same page. And we kind of got met with a bit of a brick wall and uh, a lack of interest and just a lot of old kind of stale arguments in the rest of the country are still alive here. You know, that, well, you know, they're killing all the birds and they're spreading disease and they're all this stuff. And we've just stayed focused on not trying to dispute that there are issues with free roaming cats, but how are we going to get them under control? How are we going to reduce their numbers? And there's nothing coming from the wildlife side about that. They just talk about supposedly how horrible it is to have these cats, but they offer no practical solutions for how to manage the situation. And people are hungry for practical solutions. And so we just move ahead. And we found very little opposition on the ground. It's mostly in the papers or, you know, if uh, resolutions are passed saying that, you know, feral cats are terrible and TNR is terrible, but they just don't really have an alternative plan. And so we just keep going out there and trapping them and fixing them. Sounds good. Sounds like a good plan. I appreciate that very much because I, I know people can get very wrapped up in the people conflicts. Yes. And the mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time on that and then you are not necessarily working as efficiently as you can with regards to, you know, getting the necessary job done with assisting the cats in the community. So it, you're talking about really focusing in on what your real objectives are and being productive in that area. And it's, it's easy to get distracted, but it sounds like you've really got some good goals established and focus around achieving those goals. Yeah. And I don't mean to be insensitive to the wildlife issues because we're not. There there are lots of small areas and sometimes large areas, you know, where there are very endangered species in Hawaii. And some of them are definitely ground nesting birds and ground uh, burrowing. And they're quite vulnerable to cat attacks. So we will not knowingly do TNR at a location where the presence of the cats is going to be a threat. And there's some other alternative to putting them there. Because usually these are situations where the number of cats is relatively small. Small. And we're not getting involved in what happens in the middle of the jungle and in the mountains of Kauai. You know, that's not where most of the cats are. They're behind the supermarket. They're in crowded areas. I like to say that, you know, the only endangered species in downtown Honolulu are polite taxi drivers. <laughs> so, you know. There's really no good reason not to be doing TNR there. So we try to be sensitive. We don't ignore the concerns, but we're not going to let the debate stop us from making progress. So I understand you have a new book out and it's around the topic of return to field. Would you like to share a bit about that? Sure, sure. It's the Return to Field Handbook, and it was co-authored by myself, Susan Richmond, who's the Executive Director of Neighborhood Cats, Danielle Bays, who's in charge of cat policy and community cat programs for the main side of the United States, and Karen Little, who's the Executive Director of Alley Cat Advocates in Louisville, Kentucky. And what happened was we were doing presentations sponsored by HSUS on cats and community cats in general. And we had gotten to a discussion about how there's a lot of presentations being given at conferences about why shelters should do return to field and just a lot of focus on the policy. And I I myself have done a lot of those kinds of presentations because it's relatively new. And, you know, the first step is to try to get people to understand why this is a good program. But what we saw happening was as more and more shelters were being convinced that they 
should do this, there was almost nothing out there about how to do it. There's a lot of moving parts to a good return to field program, like determining eligibility of the cats or gathering information or how you do the returns. How do you track the cat through the shelter? Where How do you house them? All these kind of nuts and bolts things. And what we found mutually was that when shelters started a return to field program, they were all starting from scratch. So we decided that all of us have years of experience with RTF programs. Why don't we put a handbook together so that we can start to build a base of knowledge and some common standards and practices in this growing area? So that's how the Return to Field Handbook came to be. And it's available through Neighborhood Cats on our website and through the Humane Society of the United States. I believe it's animalsheltering.org. And I believe Alley Cat Advocates is also distributing copies. And so you talk about the different components for a successful return to field program. So I'm wondering, as you implement a return to field program, what are the components that you have to have in order to be successful? What are the real challenges in running a program? And what are the things that we must have when we're putting one in place? I think the key to any return to field program is learning to balance the needs of the individual cat and the needs of the shelter. And those are going to change uh, both over time and with each individual cat. So you may have a cat coming in who is social, who's friendly, and it's not a circumstance where you're sure that cat would do well outside, but maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't, but you have no capacity for care. It's the middle of kitten season. Every cage is full. You've got hundreds of uh, cats and kittens and foster. You know, on balance, when you take the shelter into account and you take the cat into account, return to field is the best option you have available. That may be totally different at a different time of year. Or you may have a cat who, given the circumstances, you don't feel should go back because it would be too dangerous. Or, or you may have a feral cat who clearly will not thrive in any other situation. So the number one thing that I think the shelters need to implement is at the time of intake, there needs to be a thorough fact-gathering process. So there needs to be a questionnaire. You need to ask the people who are bringing the cat in, why are you bringing the cat in? How long have you seen the cat in the area? Are there other cats? Is there anybody feeding? Is there, are there, is there any construction or dangerous circumstances there? And just try to get as broad a picture of the cat circumstances as you can, in addition to examining the cat as an individual, like how are they behaving? One of the hard things is like, is the cat presenting as fractious because the cat's feral to a degree or because the cat's upset at being at the shelter? What is their body condition? What are their health issues? And then as a shelter, what is our capacity to address any issues? And all of this has to be taken into balance and considered to arrive at the best available outcome for that cat. And where I see issues, where I see things going a little bit awry in some return to field programs is they don't want to make that individual assessment. They want to make global assumptions about cats and that potentially can be doing a real disservice. It's definitely a challenging question because you have environmental factors at play, especially in parts of the country where you have more seasonality, you know, your kitten seasons and and those kinds of things. In, In our world, we're trained to go by a checklist. Uh, When we look at our operations in our shelter, everybody is talking about a checklist. So you have a process. And so does the handbook address how to approach making those individualized decisions? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we talk about a number of individual factors that go into assessing eligibility. And they include cat's age, the cat's body condition, the circumstances that are known at the location where the cat came from, the finder's attitude, some 
Sometimes the finder is a hostile neighbor who doesn't want cats around. They're typically referred to as a finder, the person who brings the cat to the shelter. Sometimes the finder is the caretaker of the cat. All they need is spay neuter or, or the cat may have a respiratory infection. So why did the cat come in? What are the circumstances around it? All of that needs to be looked at and assessed in order to figure out what the best possible outcome is. The trend that I'm starting to see is you know how it used to be in the early days of TNR, where the kind of dogmatic approach from what was then traditionally based model shelters was that every cat outside is leading a horrible existence. They're all diseased, they're all sick, they're all suffering, and they're better off euthanized than living in an outdoor situation. So that was a ridiculous extreme, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we know that now. We know that uh, many cats uh, thrive outdoors. But with return to field, there's now a tendency to swing to the other extreme, which is they're all doing great. And any cat that comes from outdoors, friendly or not friendly, um, whatever their particular circumstances might be, if they're in good body condition, there's an assumption being made by some shelters at this stage, and it's growing, that, gee, they must be uh, people out there who care about them, and they must be part of the neighborhood, and if they're a lost pet, they're going to find their way home, and they're loved, and they're part of the fabric, and we're taking away other people's cats if we don't put them back. And it's kind of spinning this fantastical tale about how wonderful life is for all outdoor cats. And it, and we know that that's simply not true either. You know, some community cats have great situations. Some of them have horrible situations. Mm -hmm. And we do a disservice when we don't look at each cat and each cat situation. Again, the phrase that I focus on is taking everything into account, the shelter's needs, the capacity for care, the individual cat. What is the best available outcome at this moment in time? for that cat. And that's what we should be trying to decide. We shouldn't be saying like, oh, the cat's healthy, the cat's good body condition, so just automatically put them back. That's very easy, but I think it's a real disservice. And I can say that as somebody who has done return to field, and that there is no question that there are cats, especially friendly cats, are the big sticking issue now. I think most of us are on board with putting feral cats who are in good body condition back where they came from because they're feral and they have survival skills. And it's clear that they were not pets and, and that they don't belong in it and they wouldn't do well in a traditional home. So that's where they should be. The big sticking point these days is about friendly cats, cats who come in who present as very social, but they're healthy. You can make an assumption, well, they're healthy because they're doing great, so put them back. But the problem is we've seen plenty of healthy social cats who were just dumped, who would do very poorly if they were put back. And you can tell that if you examine each cat's individual circumstances. So I'll give you an example. We uh, had a friendly cat come in who was seen in the neighborhood since he was a kitten, and now he's about two years old. There, he comes by this one person's backyard every day and meows until they feed him, and, and the children play with him, and he got a bad cold. So the, the finder was concerned about him, so she brought him into the shelter, right? So that's a case where we said, all right, there's a known history here. I mean, maybe this cat would do well in another home, but why? Why bother? He's got a home. You know, he's happy. He's cared for. He's got his feline friends. No problem returning that cat back to his outdoor situation. Well, we had another cat who suddenly appeared on somebody's porch. Uh, had never been seen in the area before, and the people were aware of other cats in the area, never seen this cat. The cat camped out on the finder's porch for a week and would not leave. And the finder continued to feed him, so he was perfectly healthy, but he had no desire to ever leave that porch. The finder was able to pick him up, put him in a carrier, and bring him in. So 
that's a cat who is not displaying behavior of an established community cat because an established community cat would come and go from the porch, would not stay frozen in one spot, would not appear all of a sudden out of nowhere. And when more investigation was done, it turns out the neighbors next door to this guy uh, moved and left their cats behind. And this was most likely one of them. So obviously we did not return that cat to field even though he was healthy. So if we don't take the time and make the effort to investigate as best we can, I realize sometimes we have incomplete information, you know, and we don't have as much as we'd like, but we still have a responsibility to make a decision on what's the best available outcome for that particular cat. And we can't go into autopilot and say, well, they're healthy, so put them back outside. And uh, if you don't, you're stealing someone's cat. That's like a term that's starting to enter the conversation, which I find disturbing because if I'm making what I think is the best decision for that individual animal, I am not stealing that cat. I'm trying to do what is in that cat's best interest. And it's an unfortunate use of the term that I think is derogatory to people who don't agree with the autopilot approach. And uh, I hope it ends real soon. Trying to catch a pregnant cat in time? Are you after that last cat who isn't fixed in your 10-cat colony? Got a wily feral who just won't go into a box trap no matter how much you spend on roasted chicken? How about catching a litter of kittens all at once with their mom? All these tough trapping situations and more can be solved if you know how to use a drop trap. Join Neighborhood Cats, co-designers of the first mass-manufactured drop trap on the market as they demonstrate how to best use this trapper's best friend, the drop trap. A Trapper's Best Friend is a webinar presented by the Community Cats Podcast and Neighborhood Cats on Saturday, June 29th, 2019 from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To sign up, go to communitycatspodcast.com. We'll see you there. Catalogical exists to help cat parents love their kitties better with the most in-depth cat food reviews online, plus hundreds of other fact-based articles. Catalogical is your one-stop shop when it comes to learning more about your cat. Catalogical works with multiple retail partners to provide custom coupons on everything from automatic litter boxes to microbiome testing, so you're also likely to save when you choose one of their recommended products. One point that you made that was very interesting there was you talked about a lot of research had gone in between those two cases. And oftentimes these decisions are made inside the shelter's doors. The outcome of that cat is happening. Once the cat comes through the doors, that's where if any information is gathered, that's where it's gathered. My sense is that a lot of that information was gathered somewhat out in the community and I could be totally wrong in that. I'll correct you on that. Yeah. That that information was gathered through a questionnaire that the finder completes okay. upon admission, and then maybe one or two follow-up phone calls. Not a great deal of effort, yeah. So it's all within the four shelter walls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does not involve being a community cat program manager who is hanging out in the community, knocking on doors all the time. Right, exactly. Talking to Sally Sue and... No. I mean, I, I do get the sense that shelters, and I don't, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they do still stay close to home in some ways. And so if there has to be a lot of information gathered from the outside world, but it sounds like you have a structured questionnaire that is filled out. Therefore, you go through all these different checkpoints. And at the end, you come out with a decision, which is in a way very good because then everybody's afraid they're going to make the wrong decision, you know, and they don't want to be blamed for making the wrong choice. And, and sometimes you're going to. And I think that, you know, people are very uncomfortable knowing that they may make mistakes. 
and it's much easier just to go on autopilot, right? This is what the boss says I have to do and I'm going to do it. Exactly, exactly. As opposed to facing the fact, I mean, we've made mistakes. We had a cat who was found in somebody's lobby of an apartment building, had never been seen before. So there was zero history about this cat. But he was very difficult for them to gather him up. It's amazing how people can get feral cats into carriers. <laughs> I, you know, I think about all the time we spend trapping and stuff like that. And then these people, somehow they put them in a box or they shove them in a carrier. But they, <laughs> they got him to the shelter. He was uh, trying to flee. He was attacking staff. Now, we know that sometimes friendly cats, often friendly cats, go berserk when they're brought to a shelter. They're frightened. So we waited several days to see, will this cat calm down? And he did not. So we were left with like, all right, based on the information we have, this is a feral cat who probably wandered into the building looking for warmth. And that's the best we can do it. So we put him back. We were completely wrong. You know, he was found a week later outside by a rescue group in bad shape because it was the middle of winter. He needed a lot of veterinary intervention to get him better. And the rescue group, of course, was very angry at us. How could you possibly have put this friendly cat back? And no matter how much we explained, like, well, this is how he presented and this is the best decision we can make. You have to be okay with that. It's going to happen sometimes. You know, the feral cats, like I say, they're easy for RTF programs. They're easy. The friendly cats fall into three categories. There's the ones who are obviously doing very poorly, right? They're injured. They're extremely sick. They're not thriving on the face of it. Just about everybody would agree. You don't put them back, right? And then you have like the example I gave where there's a lot of known history and the cat's well-established and people want him back. Well, that's very easy to say, yes, put him back. But most of the cats who are presented at the shelter are in this gray area where you have a little bit of a history. You have some clues from their behavior, some clues about the environment where they came from. And you have to make a decision about the rest of this cat's life. That's a very uncomfortable position for a lot of people to be in. And they'd rather go on autopilot and say, well, the cat's healthy, so put him back. Mm-hmm. Boom. I don't have to risk making a bad decision or a wrong, not a bad decision, but a mistaken decision. We have to get over that. And you do the best you can. And you're not going to be right every time. But that cat that's in front of you will have gotten a fair shot as opposed to just put him back. Because I can tell you, if all the cats that were presented to us for return to field were put back, a lot of those cats would be suffering right now because the initial desire to put them back was wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as it turned out, you know, just because they were healthy, as time passed, you could see they were clearly social pets who belonged inside. Yeah, it's something that we really need to almost stop and take a bit of a, a little breather and just rethink things and make sure we're really doing the best that we can. And before we started recording, you were talking about sort of, you know, going from one extreme to the other. What you're proposing in this handbook is sort of what you think of as the middle ground? Yes, I think it's the common sense ground, <laughs> you know, which is that you gather as much information as you can. And we're talking about a five, 10 minute process. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that question up. We're not talking about sending, you know, private investigators out into the community. You know, obviously there aren't the resources, but you do have the person who brought the cat standing in front of you and you can ask him some questions. And then you can ask some follow-up phone calls. If you're in a community like New York City where we have thousands of colonies that are registered and that we're tracking, we can call up a colony manager who is nearby and ask them. So it's not a time-consuming or resource-intensive process to gather a certain amount of basic information. So that's what you do. And what the handbook advocates, well, it's not all about eligibility. That is kind of the topic we're talking about now. But we're saying look at their age, look at their condition, look at all the circumstances, and then make a decision for that cat. 
And the shelter circumstances count too. Do we have the capacity for care? Do we have foster homes? Do we have medical resources for this cat? The answer may be no. And I, I mean, I am not in favor of euthanizing healthy cats. I think that should almost never be done. There's very, very rare. Do I think that's ever justified? Like I can think of one case where there was like a, a very healthy feral cat who was living in the middle of a bird sanctuary, nowhere to relocate in a community where relocation is not an option due to the overpopulation of cats, putting them back there in the middle of endangered ground nesting birds was not an option. And euthanasia was the only, I mean, I wasn't happy about it. I didn't advocate it, but I didn't try to fight it because I didn't have a better answer. That's an extreme situation. I don't mind putting friendly cats back outside when they're healthy and there's, that's the best alternative. I'd rather give them some chance than none, but it should be an evaluation. It shouldn't be this fantasy. Like, for example, you see a lot of return to field programs justifying putting social cats back outside by saying that they cite this research that it's 18 times or whatever the number is. I think it's 18, 18 times more likely that a friendly cat returned to their territory will find their way home than it is that the owner will come to the shelter to reclaim the cat, right? But the problem is that the average reclaim rate is only 2%. That's basically what you're saying is, well, if you put the cat back outside, he's got a 36% chance of finding his way home, right? And that's better than the 2% chance at the shelter. Well, the problem is that you're also saying the cat has a 64% or two-thirds chance of not finding his way home. So if you're in a shelter with a high live release rate and you're able to rehome cats, why would you ever put a friendly cat back right. based on him having a one in three chance of finding his way home? To me, that's nuts. I don't, I don't understand that logic at all. Now, if you're in a shelter with a 20% live release rate and the cat's chance of surviving is double if you put him back, well, by all means. So it's an individual assessment that depends on each cat is different and each cat deserves his own evaluation. Right. It goes from that micro to the larger components. So you're talking about an individual cat gathering the information. Then we're also talking about the environment at the shelter and the environment in the community. There is this sort of multi-factored process of consideration in order to be able to create the best possible outcome for that cat. Yes, exactly. And what we're working to do is to make that the standard. We think that should be the dominant approach in our field for how to deal with friendly cats that come into return to field programs. And personally, you know, I can't speak for my other co-authors, but I'm just, I'm appalled at this autopilot approach. It's, it's almost like the vision is uh, of people who want to put all the friendly, healthy cats back is that the shelter should be empty. You know, that, that, that the perfect shelter is one where there are no cats. And, you know, some animals need shelter. Mm -hmm. And so we're going too far the other way. And it has, you know, this advocacy. One of the reasons you probably hear how adamant I am about this in my tone (laughs) is this argument that people are putting out there that, you know, if you don't put friendly cats back, you're stealing them. Um, It's making these assumptions that they're all going back to these wonderful situations and that, you know, rehoming them would be terrible and you'd be taking them out of their community. It has real life consequences. There are shelters out there who are refusing to take in friendly cats, even though they have tons of room for them. Mm -hmm. And they're relying on that. They're saying, well, the cat's healthy, so he should go back. And it's becoming a program that started, Return to Field started as an alternative to euthanasia of healthy cats. Because it started in Jacksonville, where there was, it was like an 80-90% euthanasia rate for cats when they started in 2008. A cat going into that shelter had almost no chance of coming out alive. So putting them back in the community, friendly, young, feral, whatever, they had a much better chance of surviving than if they stayed at the shelter. And that made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case in every shelter now. 
And we just need to be more thoughtful about this and, and how we handle each cat. You know, not just switch on to something where instead of protecting cats from euthanasia, we're putting them into potentially dangerous and, and at-risk situations needlessly. So if folks are interested in finding out more about the book, or you may have some information on your website about this topic too, would they go to the Neighborhood Cats website? Yes, they can go to neighborhoodcats.org and uh, click on resources and you'll see a section for books and videos and we'll have a copy of it there. And also you can go to animalsheltering.org, which is uh, uh, the Humane Society of the United States' website. You can find the handbook and a ton of other information about Return to Field and TNR and everything in between on their site as well. And I believe that Alley Cat Advocates is also distributing it from their site. I'm trying to think about the folks who, you know, maybe are practicing return to field, the organizations that have an RTF program and they feel like they are progressive and leading change and have done so much with their shelters and that kind of thing. But maybe they're hearing what you're saying today and maybe they're going, huh, I wonder, do you have any advice for those folks? Yeah. uh, Make your own independent judgment about how you should be running your program. I mean, unfortunately, I think there are some people in this field who otherwise I greatly respect who are pushing, you know, what I think is a harmful view. But because they're authorities, because they're respected, people are just accepting, well, if they say that, then that must be true. So no more than anybody should just accept what I'm saying as true without examining it and thinking about it themselves. The reverse is true. So realize that there are different sides to this. There are different viewpoints and come up with one that you believe will work for you. And that makes sense. And that is fair to the cats. That's great. Do you have any final thoughts, Brian, before we close out today? Yeah. I, you know, I think I'd be remiss because I'm really, a, I'm a TNR guy uh, <laughs> a long way back. And, you know, I was actually not that crazy about Return to Field when it started, but for a different reason. I felt that you were not exerting population control on the cats if you were just fixing individual cats who came in randomly from the community and put them back outside. I mean, I think that I've always supported it for saving those cats' lives. But I think there was a bit of a myth in the beginning being perpetrated that you were somehow reducing the cat population by doing RTF. And you're not. We know now you have to target, you have to concentrate surgeries. It's not so easy to lower the cat population as to just fix random cats who come in and put them back outside, even though that by itself is a good thing. You know, I was concerned about the sustainability of these programs when I was a grants manager at PetSmart Charities. You know, what would happen after the money ran out? And then all of a sudden, you know, you still had the same cat population. You still had the same number of cats coming into the shelter. What would have been accomplished? And I've since changed my view. And that's because What I found is that when shelters adopt return to field programs, they never go back. They see they have this amazing life-saving program going on and the culture in the shelter changes. And I've never seen a shelter reverse and stop doing it. So it, it is sustaining by its own force. And then what I've also seen is I've seen shelters evolve into adding TNR onto because they start to ask themselves, all right, it'd be better if we didn't have to do so much RTF. So how do we stop the cats from coming in in the first place? And then they start thinking about TNR and they start thinking about targeting and that starts to add on and it starts to grow into a fuller program. So now I'm an RTF fan, but I always want the people who are running these programs and adding them on to have the question in their back of the mind of how do we stop these cats from having to get these services in the first place? How do we minimize the number of cats we RTF? And that involves going out into the community and not just waiting for them to bring you cats to be fixed, but going out there and finding them and fixing them yourselves first. So TNR and RTF to me are two sides of the same coin. They're both part of of a good community cat program. So even if you're only doing one at one point, 
you want to think about adding on the other at some stage. I think that's great. I think that that is sort of like the icing on the cake, maybe, and the two of them working together Mm -hmm. will make a great dessert, put it that way. Exactly, exactly. Well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for joining me today for my 300th episode of the Community Cats podcast. And we got your passion going in there and talking about return to field and all the work that we have going on and congratulations on the handbook. And I really appreciate it. Also, thank you again for collaborating with the Community Cats podcast. June 29th webinar is about the drop trap. Everybody keep a lookout for that and sign up and enjoy that. And thank you so much, Brian. Oh, thank you, Stacey. And again, congratulations and an honor to be on your 300th show. Join us June 21st through 23rd for a kitten-focused event presented by the National Kitten Coalition and the Community Cats Podcast. This three-day virtual gathering will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens, setting up and managing kitten-centered shelter programs, and more. Early bird tickets are available now through April 30th for just $50, and after that, $75 tickets will be available through June 22nd. So don't wait. Sign up for the 2019 Online Kitten Conference. 